Christ is the image of God. We just read, Paul just said that the Lord is that spirit. And now he is saying the image of God is Christ. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of who? In the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight, we are going to talk about the oneness of God. Amen. If you've got, if the scripture is important, then this is very, very important. So we're spending time talking about doctrinal things. Now, we didn't start here. We started with things that change, foundational elements. Then we went into relational elements, but here we are in doctrinal elements. Amen. The oneness of God. God bless you. You can be seated. Now, I have 10 pages here tonight, and I don't want that to freak you out. I'm, I'm going to move through here. And if, I, if there are no rabbit trails, uh, we, can, we can get through this in a timely fashion, but not, not, we don't want to rush, not too hasty. How do you describe yourself when you meet somebody new? Or, I guess a, maybe a better question would be, how do you think others describe you? How would you describe yourself? Stand up and tell us a few things. Praise God. Amen. Brother Rob Huff, is he in here tonight? Let's have him stand up and say a few things. All right, go get him and tell him that we want him to stand up and say a few things about himself tonight. This is going to be good. Amen. Uh, how would you describe yourself or how would somebody else describe you? Praise God, Brother Rob Huff. You're doing devotion at men's fellowship on Thursday night. Okay, so be ready. You got that? All right. Amen. In Jesus name. So Brother Rob Huff on men's fellowship is giving a uh, devotion, a short devotion. And since he's right behind you, Brother Josiah Winkler is also going to give a devotional uh, the two of them can tag team, work together. While the ladies are praying in here, we'll be over there having a good time as well. Can you all do that? All right. Amen. Praise God. Nothing like putting you on the spot. Uh, it's short. It's short, but something inspirational. How would you describe yourself or how would someone else describe you? But more importantly, how would you describe who God is? That's very, very important. The entire scripture corpus is a revelation of God's nature. It's a description of God. It describes God. It defines God. It gives us the descriptions of who and what God is. You can start from creation. There's something that is to set, be said about what God is. When you go through the covenant and the law, it is saying something specific about God. When you get to the life of Christ, it is saying something about God. And then when you talk about prophecy, and end times and eschatology, the last things. It is saying something about God's character and God's name. For example, the scripture said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's talking about his nature or his character. He's the beginning and he is the ending. And he's everything in between. If you're looking for a God that can respond to you, he's everything from the beginning to the ending. In your life, from the beginning to the ending, God is there. And he can provide to you exactly what you need. So if you came to the house of God tonight, I know it's Tuesday night on the rock, but all of us came into this place tonight doing a lot of things throughout the day. I need a strength of God, an encouragement of God, an anointing of God that I already know I have received. And when I leave, I'm going to be uplifted. Paul captures the essential elements of Christology. That is the study of Christ in this passage of scripture that we have read. He started in chapter three and he continues the theme in chapter number four. Before we talk about that, we need to talk about Paul's background. Paul is a self-described religious individual, very zealous of the law. He was Jewish. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He had a good education. He found himself in the prominent position of a Pharisee, and he persecuted the church. At some point on his way to Damascus with letters to persecute the church, 
He was knocked off of his horse, and Jesus spoke to him and asked him why he is persecuting. Paul asked who it was, and, and the definition and the explanation that came back is, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul committed his life from that moment of time. He committed his life to Jesus Christ. He traveled over 10,000 miles throughout present-day Israel, Syria, Turkey, and Greece. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He was a missionary. He was pastoral in his work. In the writings to the Corinthian church, it is pastoral work. He was a theologian and is writing to the Romans. He lays out his theology. Second Corinthians that we have started with is the fourth letter to the church in Corinth, Greece. That struggled, that struggled with immorality and division. Paul's solution to their problems, and I think it's a solution to our problems that we face today in our culture, in our life, in our church, whatever we may be facing, Paul's solution was the transforming power and glory of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. I just want to say right here that I'm so very, very thankful that I've got a revelation of God in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. I am not confused about who I worship tonight. I'm not confused about who I lift my voice tonight. I'm not confused about who I've clapped my hands to tonight. I'm I'm not confused on who I was baptized in what name tonight. I'm not confused about whose spirit is living on the inside of me. Come on, anybody excited about the fact that you know your Redeemer lives and he's in this house and his presence can be felt. Let's clap our hands and thank the Lord in appreciation. Hallelujah for who he is and his greatness and his glory. Hallelujah. A God that is bigger than we can comprehend. Sometimes people try to get their head around God in the beginning. Where did things start? There, there's no way that you can get your mind around or comprehend a God that is bigger than our comprehension. And yet that God that is bigger than our comprehension desires to be known. He's a God that is multifaceted. Tonight in this place, we can feel him as a redeemer. He redeemed us from the hand of the enemy. Tonight we can, we can talk about his mercy that extends to us. None of us would be here if it were not for the mercy of God. We can talk about grace that teaches us to deny ungodliness. There's a multifaceted ability to talk about God in his many, many capacities. One person said, when I need a lawyer, he was my lawyer. One person said, when I needed a doctor, he was my doctor. Whatever you need, God can respond specifically to that need because his character is everything that we need. Paul starts affirming what Genesis teaches, that God is a spirit. God is a spirit. And so he goes back and he says in that passage of scripture that we started with, the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. God's revelation of his identity started from the beginning. God said that he is the holy one. And apart from him, there is no other God. In scripture, we learn who God says he is and that his oneness is a foundational truth of great, great significance. Now, this is not something that you got to pour through and try to figure out and try to search for hidden gems. These things will pop out at you just about in every book, every chapter that God's identity is wrapped up in his oneness. Let's turn. We're going to read two verses, Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1 through 3. And then we'll also be reading Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 4. Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God <clears throat> moved upon the face of the waters and God said let there be light and there was light from the beginning pages 
God is a God of creation. God is a spirit, and he is a spirit that is in action. Later on, we find another very foundational passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter number 6 and verse number 4. This is known as the Shema. Shema means hear, and it obviously starts in verse number 4 with hear, O Israel. And so they refer to this as the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. These two passages of Scripture, they are a revelation of his identity. Why do you think God spoke light into darkness? Well, it tells us that the, the world, the earth was without form and it was void. And so God speaks a creative word into existence. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 4, who does God say that he is? He says, the Lord our God is one Lord. I am one Lord. How do you think this initial act of God functions as a principle he wants to continue in the lives of his people today. From the very beginning, God has been speaking to things without form and that is void. There is darkness on the face of the deep. There is nothingness there. There is, there is, there is no form. There's, there's no structure. And God speaks into that. Many times in our life, God does the same thing for us because our lives are without form. And it is void. It is absent of light. It is full of darkness. But thanks be to God that gives us the victory and shines a light into our world. And old things have been passed away and behold, all things become new. And he starts speaking and breathing upon who we are and shaping. Hallelujah. The master starts working and creates in us a new creation. I'm thankful he didn't leave me in the miry clay. I'm thankful he picked me out of the miry clay. I'm thankful that he transformed and changed my life and he breathed on the darkness that was who I was and he brought a light into my world people hold many concepts of God sometimes they think he's a tyrant or he's a doting grandfather monotheists believe in one God atheists believe there is no God agnostics aren't sure if there's a God pantheists believe everything is God Polytheists believe there are many gods, but I'm coming to you here tonight and I want to know what does God say about who he is? And if you're going to get at what God says, who he is and how he is defined, you've got to go to the scripture and find out what he himself says. And what he's already said is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So I know that the God that I'm serving is unified he is one in his essence one in his identity and it is one of the most clearest themes in the entire scripture he said i even i am the lord beside me there is none else i'm a god that can save you i'm a god that can bring you out i don't need any help i'm greater than any other gods that are around me others may worship the pantheon but i'm the one true living god God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. He's the beginning and he is the ending. He's everlasting and he is a very present help in the time of need. He's good, but he sent plagues and people died. He's patient, but he's been angry and punished sin. He's sovereign, but he allows people to make their own decisions even when he knows best. He's a deliverer, and he is a disciplinarian. He is merciful, and he is righteous. His nature and characteristics are revealed throughout the Scripture. They're revealed in anthropomorphic language. What is that? Well, there's sayings. If God is a spirit, and from the beginning he is a spirit, then in the Old Testament we find a God that you cannot see. And so the writers would describe him as having nostrils, the nostrils of God. 
That's not to be viewed as some big thing that's going to suck you in or eyes of God running to and fro. Doesn't mean there's a big eyeball that's following you around. That's anthropomorphic language that is describing God. God smells. He savors. I I believe he smells and savors the worship of his people. (laughs) I, I believe that he savors and smells the petitions of his people. I believe that he sees the eyes of the Lord. I believe that he sees right where you are tonight in this house. He knows the condition of where you are and he knows the condition of your heart and he knows what you need and he can deliver what you need and you can walk away changed because you've received what you need. I want somebody to clap your hands tonight like you really, really mean it. That's for those of you that are a little tired. I'm, I'm making up the gap for you. I'm helping you out. <laughs> Hallelujah. We should be excited that we serve one God. You should never get tired of the fact. You should serve him with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Everything that is in you. The arm of God. Man, there's just a lot of stuff that you could start talking about. His arm is not short that it cannot reach. He can reach to you. Amen. His right hand of power and his ability. It's authority. So there's anthropomorphic language that describes God. Everybody with me? Amen. There were times in the Old Testament that he would appear in some way, shape, or form called theophanies. If God is a spirit, and it's almost like God is constantly, he's inserting himself because he wants to be known. He's a spirit, but he inserts himself into the fabric of the Old Testament, and and it's inferior forms. We don't get the significance until the New Testament, but when you look at it from this vantage point, God is always, he appears to Abraham. Abraham sees three men coming. God appears in a temporary form because he wants to be known. Ladies and gentlemen, God wants to be known. Amen. I know you came to the house of God and I know we say we worship God and when we worship him, he comes down in our midst. But I believe this. I believe God wants to be here and he wants to infiltrate and be among those that worship him and praise him. It's not as if somehow I got to praise and do all this so that God comes down. It's that God is already here and he wants to be known and I have access to him. And so he inserts himself into the narrative and into the story. There was one remarkable occurrence that takes place in Exodus chapter 3. In verse number 1 through 4, Moses is tending his flock uh, of Jethro, his father-in-law, and he is on the backside of the desert. He comes to the mountain of God called Horeb, and the angel of the Lord appears unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, he called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. This is a theophany. God is revealing in a specific location, in a specific place, in a burning bush. God appears to Moses in a theophany. He's revealing himself in a way that can be seen even though he is a spirit. Notice that God was not limited to one space even though the physical manifestation is at the burning bush. Just because the burning bush is burning, this does not mean that God in his totality is in the bush. He is in all places. He is appearing to Moses. Moses recognizes this. God says unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord your God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you that my name is forever. 
And this is my memorial unto all generations. The I am, I'm visiting you here in a theophany, but I am revealing part of my nature. Part of my nature is the I am is going to go with you. And it's not going to be just something that is in one generation, but it's going to be a memorial unto all generations. That's a defining characteristic of God, that God is with you to all generations. There are times when the enemy may come to you, you need to tell the enemy, the I am is with me. I haven't seen a burning bush or anything like that, but I know this, the I am that spoke from the burning bush is the same God. And if he's the same God, that said I'm going to be with you unto all generations that means to all generations God is with you in this place here tonight he's going to be faithful in whatever adversity you faith he is true to his word he is true to his character he's a God that is faithful and he's with you and he walks with you the name that was revealed to Moses was recorded in Hebrew with four letters Four letters, Y-H-W-H. That's ancient Hebrew that was written. And in ancient Hebrew, it was written with consonants and no vowels. The Masoretic text of the Hebrew Old Testament, those vowels were added. In the beginning, they were just consonants. It was ancient Hebrew written with consonant and no vowels. In our language, we have vowels, A-E-I-O-U. And you use those vowels connected with the consonants to pronounce things. If you don't have any vowels, then how would you pronounce stuff? Amen. So the vowels, just something that popped into my head. I remember one lady teaching a choir clinic said that you always carry the vowels. <laughs> to God be the glory. That was pretty good, huh, Brother McCann? That's what your face should be like. That's what she said when you're singing. Because you're pronouncing, not the consonants, you're pronouncing the vowels. And you carry out the vowels. Well, if you don't have any vowels, then you can't piece things together. So, there were no vowels. They were so, they were so appreciative of his name that they... They didn't pronounce it until the pronunciation was lost. This is something known, these four letters are known as the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. So in English, when you read your Bible, it's often represented as Lord in all caps or as in Lord. So that Y-H-W-H becomes Lord. They so revered that name, they didn't speak it out loud, and over time, the correct pronunciation was lost. In English, you can also see evidence where it is Jehovah or Yahweh. I, personally, I like to use the term Yahweh because it kind of fits with the Y-H-W-H. We're just assuming that it may be pronounced that way. So the Yahweh of the Old Testament is a spirit. A shortened form of Yahweh is Yah. We can find that in Psalm 68, verse 4. Sing unto God, sing praises to his name, extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. This is why when we say hallelujah, we're saying halal means praise you, God. Hallelujah is praise you, God. This is why it needs to be an explanation. Hallelujah. No, you're supposed to praise God. Hallelujah. No, you're not supposed to say hallelujah. You're supposed to praise God. Hallelujah. Yeah, so that, that, that is, that's the point. Throughout the Old Testament... God continued to reveal himself. He spoke to Noah. He appeared as an angel to Abraham. He appeared in some fashion to Isaac. He came to Jacob as an angel and spoke to him in dreams. He went before the Israelites in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He appeared as an angel to a woman in Judges chapter 13, verse 6. He appeared in the fiery furnace. 
Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25. Wherever he appeared, he was not only at the, this is important, he was not only at the specific location, but he was also omnipresent everywhere at the same time. So the God that was in and appeared in the burning, fiery furnace still was the creator of the universe because he is omnipresent. It didn't mean that he, when he was speaking from a burning bush that everything that God was was in the burning bush or was in the fiery furnace or was wrestling with Jacob when Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord. It just simply means that he is in that particular place and he is in all places at the same time. This idea of omnipresence comes from Isaiah chapter 57 and verse number 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. He dwells in a high and lofty place. We're serving a God that is high and lifted up. And that's what's meant when we say that. We serve a God that is high and lifted up. Isaiah said he was high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and I recognized in his presence and in his ability how insignificant I was in the presence of a significant God so in the Old Testament Yahweh is a spirit he reveals himself in theophanies there's language that describes him you can even this this is just scratching the surface you can get in the compound names of God Jehovah Jireh Je Jehovah Shalom Jehovah Nisi he's constantly revealing his character and his ability in the New Testament God made himself into a sinless human to live among his people people didn't understand who he was so he quoted scripture often to reveal his identity and to find out who Jesus is we still look to the scripture today I'm thankful for the word of God somebody said amen so I have a passage of scripture for you to turn to I've actually got two but let's start with the first one turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6 Isaiah chapter 9 verse number 6 Chapter 9, verse number 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And read it with me. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Let's read that again. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He's in the house of God tonight, <laughs> and we have felt his ability and his presence. Look at me right here. Look at me right here. He's a God that is here in all. Man, I am telling you, one of these times I'm going to come up here with uh, some glasses that I can't see out of. So I get too distracted. Man, some of y'all looking over here, looking over there. I've seen some of you yawn so much. I've seen right down into your esophagus here tonight. Lord, have mercy. Praise God. Praise God. How about John chapter 1 and verse number 1? Let's look at that. Amen. John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hmm. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Notice that. Notice, in the beginning, Yahweh created all things. Now, this Word we're talking about, we're talking about the plan, the statement of God that becomes Jesus Christ. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. 
you go down to verse number nine, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh amen who would be called the mighty god and everlasting father isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6 this child that is to be born this son that is going to be given is going to be what it's going to be called the the mighty god the everlasting father who was the light that shone in the darkness it was jesus who was God in the flesh, according to verse number 14. It was Jesus Christ. Praise God. The plan of God existed in the mind of God before the body of Jesus was created. There was a plan. There was a statement. God always, from the very beginning, interjects himself into the equation. Theophanies in the Old Testament. But when we get to this passage of Scripture, the fullness of everything that he does amen becomes god manifested in the flesh the very first verse we read said the glory is going to be seen on the face of jesus christ this plan existed in the mind of god before the body of jesus was created this is why first peter chapter 1 and verse number 18 says for as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, right here, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. You know who Jesus Christ is for? It's for you. You know why he was manifested in the flesh? For you. This is why we give him praise. This is why we give him glory because it was for you. It was for me. I want to give him glory and recognize he's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The thoughts and plans of God became flesh became flesh Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 9 for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead what bodily everything is encapsulated and captured in the body of Jesus Christ in the same way that we are made from the DNA of both our mothers and fathers Jesus was made both from his mother and his father one was human and one was divine. Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, the angel answered and said unto Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore also know that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Everyone say the Son of God. That thing that is born in you is going to be called the Son of God. Doesn't become the Son of God until there is a birth of the Son of God. It was in the mind, statement, and plan of God. It was the Word of God in the beginning, but it doesn't become the Son of God that is a visible manifestation until there is a Son that is born. And His name is Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us when you look on the face of jesus you're looking on the fullness of god when joseph realized the woman he was to marry was expecting a child that was not his an angel appeared unto him and said stay committed to her stay committed to her amen Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, took unto him his wife, knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. There's something that happens when you say in Jesus' name. 
His presence is there. His authority is there. His goodness is there. Everything that in his character is there. I'm not going to take the name of the Lord in vain. I'm going to worship the name of the Lord and exalt him because I recognize the power that is found resident in the name. Oh, come on, somebody. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is, there is, there is, there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Mm. In his earthly life, he proclaimed himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. Luke chapter 4 and verse number 18, he stood up in the temple and he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Jesus made the declaration that I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. I am wonderful. I am counselor. I am the mighty God. I am the everlasting father. I am the prince of peace. And I am the same one that spoke to Moses from the burning bush. I am, I am, I am. I'm Jehovah that cannot be seen, but is now in a visible manifestation. And when you see me, you have seen the Father. He claimed to be older than Abraham. John chapter 8 and verse 57, the Jews said unto him, Thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was... I am. He told the disciples that after his death, they would know that he was the I am. John chapter 13, verse 19. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am. I am. You're going to know that I am the I am. John chapter 18 and verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? This is in the garden. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. This is Judas' betrayal. Jesus said unto them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. Jesus made the declaration. It was on his lips that he was the I am. The same I am that spoke to Moses from a burning bush. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3 said, Who, speaking of Jesus, being the brightness of his glory. And what? The express image of his person. Ladies and gentlemen, the only person that Yahweh will ever have is in the form of Jesus Christ. <laughs> the person of Yahweh is Jesus Christ. The manifestation of Yahweh is the Son of God that was born, and his name is Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The express... Mm, the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high right hand is not referring to a right hand of a person it's referring to a right hand of authority and power and excellence he sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high Jesus, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment of all, Jesus echoed Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Is it becoming clear to you? Is the theme clear to you? That the God of the Old Testament reveals himself in the New Testament in the image, the express image 
of Jesus Christ. If that doesn't excite you, I don't know what will. This is one of the reasons why we baptize in Jesus' name. This is one of the reasons why the apostles baptized in Jesus' name. Why? Because they recognize directly connected to his identity is his character. And so if you're going to get it right, you better get it right. Not titles. Don't repeat titles. Repeat the identity of who God is. He is God manifested in the flesh in the express image of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. I got two more points. Let me move on. Or we can quit right here. Jesus is fully God and he is fully human. Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% human. He fully acknowledged and embraced both his humanity by natural things such as eating and sleeping and his deity by performing miracles and forgiving sins. And the verse I want to read together with you is Colossians chapter number 2 and verse number 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse number 8 and 9. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Praise God. Are you ready? Is everybody ready? You got your seatbelts fastened. All right. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. What? Bodily. Bodily. He was fully God, and he was fully human and fully divine. Can a pure faith in Jesus be spoiled by religious philosophies or traditions or philosophies in general? According to this passage of Scripture, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. How much of the divine nature of God dwelt in Jesus? Verse number 9 of Colossians chapter 2 said, All, all. Why is it important to know that Jesus Christ was both human and divine? You can get some really squirrely debates and conversations about his nature and whether or not it was fully human, fully divine. Why is it necessary that he is both fully human and fully divine? Why? Why? Well, some of you could answer that question, and we'll look at some verses that will help us, but we need him to be fully human to understand the predicament of our human condition. If he's not fully human then it's an exercise in futility because he doesn't understand what we go through. Praise God. One of the reasons why it's so much of a blessing to come into the house of God and feel God's presence is because he identifies with where we are because he was fully human. At the same time, he must be fully divine because there can't be any salvation without a God that is fully God. Because if he's not fully God, he's not going to be forgiving sins. This is what is so impacting when he tells the man that is lowered of four into the house. The first thing that he says is not take up your bed and walk, but he says, thy sins are forgiven you. And everybody else is looking at him like, have you lost your mind? There is only one that can forgive sins, and that is God. Who are you? Jesus purposely says, I'm forgiving your sins. And then he says, take up your bed and walk because God is a good God and God reveals his power. His incarnation, that is the word became flesh, cannot be divided. He was not half human and half God. Galatians chapter four and verse four says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. It was a specific time frame that the son of God comes into existence in physical personage. There is no person of Jesus Christ before he is born. There is a statement. There's a word. There's a plan. There's an idea that God's going to do something from the beginning of time. But it doesn't come to fruition until Jesus Christ is born. He had thoughts and feelings. He was a God with a divine nature 
and he was also a human with a free will. Without his own free will, his temptations would have been a farce and his sacrifice and execution rather than a redeeming love. I want you to know, sitting on these pews here tonight, in this place, amen, that God is not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of your infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet he knew no sin. He knows what you go through, and yet he was a God that, that, that conquered and vanquished sin. We have an opportunity to say, I want to be like that. I want your anointing to be with me in a measured form so that I can live an overcoming life. Amen. He was a sinless man and he was baptized. This is the real challenge in understanding the incarnation because at times he acts from both divine and human perspectives. This is, if you're looking for a mystery, this is the mystery. He speaks as only God could speak, and yet he prays as a man to God. This prayer that he prays to God acknowledges his humanity and is a model for how we should pray. As a sinless man, he is baptized. He had no need to repent, but he submits and the Holy Ghost validates his baptism. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, John says, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answered and said, Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus submits to baptism. It was for blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is claiming to be God, that he was sentenced to death. Mark chapter 14 and verse 63, the high priest rent his clothes and said, do we need any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. They condemned him to death because he blasphemed and made the claim that he was God. He submitted to the purpose of God. He submitted his human will to the purpose of God. He suffered and he thirsted. Emotionally, he felt forsaken in the Garden of Eden. Yet he said, not my will, but thine be done. The power of God in him could not be quenched. He offered forgiveness to the thief on the cross. He extended mercy to those who crucified him. And on the resurrection morning, in a miraculous display of divine power, he raised himself from the dead. We do not serve a dead God. We serve a living God. I'm thankful for that. Jesus even... He even gave a, a preliminary nod in John chapter 2 and verse number 19. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, 40 and 60 years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. We're talking about a God that lives in resurrecting power. Hallelujah. He's not left in a tomb somewhere, but he came out with resurrection power. Power. That's the kind of God that you serve, the kind of God that I serve. I'm faithful. I'm not in a dead, dull, boring church. I'm thankful that I'm in an inspired, energetic, powerful church where the presence of God operates in the midst of the people of God. We need to thank God right now and clap our hands and lift our voice and say thanks to a God that is still alive and vibrant and well and is still at work. Amen. Sometimes people get hung up on some words. Sometimes they get hung up on the right hand. The right hand is talking about power and authority. Power and authority. If Jesus is on the right hand of God, that means he has all power and authority of God. It's in the right hand. Sometimes people get hung up with the royal we, or what is known as the majestic plural, let us make man in our image. It's not talking about multiple personages. 
doesn't mean more than one person. It means greatness, power, and prestige. Sometimes people get caught up on rhetorical repetition. Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 3. Is this all right tonight? Is this okay? I'm enjoying this. I hope you're enjoying this. Is everybody awake? Look around you and make sure everybody's okay. Please don't make me stand on my head tonight. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 3. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the rhetorical repetition. This builds and emphasizes a single concept. It does not imply two gods, but that two revelations of the same being who is both Lord and God. When you say grace to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, you're putting an understanding and revelation of the God of the Old Testament who is Yahweh has become flesh and is Jesus in the New Testament. And it's not describing two personages. It's talking about two revelations that are found in the one essential man, Christ Jesus. And the word was made flesh, says John, and dwells among us and Paul said he's the expressed image of his person amen this is what is so profound because in John chapter 20 and verse 28 Thomas says my Lord and what my God sister Marianne if you keep singing with me we're going to lose people so stop that Praise God. I got one more point here tonight. Can you hang on just a bit? One more point. The God who is to come. Jesus declared himself the one which is and which was and which is to come. Mm, he has conquered death and secured victory for his people. And we will see him face to face when he returns for us. Do you believe in a God that's returning? Man, if you're living in 2020 and you see the chaos around our world... It should drive you more to an understanding that one of these old mornings won't be very long. You're going to look for me. Praise God. I'm going to be gone because Jesus is returning. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the all who is saying he's the almighty? Jesus is saying, I am, I am the almighty. Can there be more than one almighty? Well, I, I mean, if you say I'm the almighty, what are you saying? You're saying there are no other almighties. There might be some mighties, but they're not the almighty. Because I am the almighty. There is none beside me there is none else i'm the alpha and omega and if you don't know what that means that means the first letter of the greek alphabet and the last letter of the greek alphabet the first letter is alpha and the last is the omega which i learned in school to the itsy bitsy spider alpha beta gamma delta epsilon zeta eta theta yota kappa lambda mu nu kasi omicron pi rho sigma tau Upsilon phi ki pussy. Omega. He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the ending. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Almighty. In the centuries after the New Testament, controversies arose concerning the deity of Christ. And the answer was to try to fix it by Greek philosophy. So church creeds were developed which did not agree with the language of the Bible. They did agree with Greek philosophy, but it did not agree with the verses and scripture of the Bible. While it is okay to express ideas and concepts, any teaching must agree with God's self-revelation in his word. I heard one individual say that was a very renowned scholar that in the New Testament, the early church, for, for practical purposes and intents, he said, believed that Jesus was God. And then he, he really went off on a tangent by saying that early church, they were so busy in revival and expansion, they really didn't have time to sit down and really consider their Christology. 
And so that's where later on the creedal developments really fine-tuned their Christology. I want to say to you that I believe that that is backwards. I believe that early church coming off of being with Jesus realized he was the I am. He was the almighty. He was, Jesus was God. And they preached it and they taught it. And there was an expansion. And because there was a waning of their abilities as we moved into centuries falling after that, I, I, I believe there's always been a church and there's always been truth. But in the, the centuries that followed that early expansion there were creedal statements that that go against the grain of scripture itself some that we have read here tonight the bible speaks of god as father and son and holy spirit but it never speaks of three persons it never speaks of three centers of consciousness in god and that's one of the problems or breakdowns with the greek philosophy because when you say person it describes personhood. And we've read that God is a spirit in the Old Testament. So if God is a spirit, he cannot have personhood until he produces personhood. And that is the son of God that is in Jesus Christ. And so the only person that you're going to see is Jesus. Yahweh is a spirit. The Holy Ghost is a spirit. But the personage of God is in Christ. The Old Testament presents God as our creator and our father and describes the spirit as God's personal presence and action in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it identifies Jesus as the Son of God, which means when you hear Son of God, Son of God, what does that mean? It means manifested in the flesh, but never does the scripture call Jesus God the Son. There is a difference. There's a big difference. God the Son speaks of an eternal pre-existing sonship while the Son of God speaks of Jesus' physical birth. There is no God the Son, but there is a Son of God. Because he was born of a woman under the law, the sonship takes place when he is born to Mary, and he becomes Emmanuel, which is God with us. But nowhere does the Scripture say God the Son in some ways where we would describe and think that Jesus preexisted in the form of his birth and in the visions of his express person. This is where there is a breakdown in that. God is one in his nature. The God who fathered creation is the Holy Ghost. The concept of three persons of God radically departs from the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is why it's so powerful as Brother McAllister comes in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And as you stand together and as we read this verse together, this is a verse that brings it all together. When Paul writes to Timothy and he says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the, in the world, and received up into glory. Amen. He is God manifested in the flesh. And Jesus opens a door. Amen. He opens a door between heaven and earth. And he restores a relationship with God. Amen. Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Amen. He is God and he is the Lamb. There's only one throne. There's one Lord and one throne, but many facets of God to celebrate. He's the Lion. And he's the lamb. He's the ancient of days. And he's the son of man. He's the holy one who came to save. And when the end of days has come and time is no more, we shall see not many faces, but we will see one face. For Revelation 22 and verse 3 says, There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And... They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Praise God. He's the Holy One. Amen. He's righteous. He's holy. Amen.
Praise God. Mm, holy one, you are so wonderful. Marvelous, you are my God. Majesty, you reign in glory. up there yes you are holy one you are so wonderful marvelous you are my God majesty you reign in glory Let's sing. 